Welcome to the Nixon Now Podcast. I'm John from Avroidis. Our subject today is U.S.-China relations immediately after World War II. In December 1945, five-star Army General George Marshall came out of retirement to help usher in a new era of political stability in China. China had finished a long war with Japan and had its own struggles between nationalists and communists. Here with us to discuss this subject is Daniel Kurtz Phelan, author of the newly released The China Mission, George Marshall's Unfinished War, 1945 to 1947. Daniel Kurtz Phelan is the executive, executive editor of Foreign Affairs Magazine. He previously served in the U.S. State Department as a member of the Secretary of State's policy planning staff. His reportage and analysis have appeared in publications including the New York Times and the New Yorker. Daniel, welcome. Thank you so much. Good to be here. Just a first question. Why did you decide to undertake this project? Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a kind of interesting origin story. This really grows out of my experience going into government for the first time. And uh, about 10 years ago, I went into the State Department and became a member of the Secretary of State's policy planning staff, which is an office that was created originally by, by George Marshall, first led by George Kennan, and became very famous in the early years of the Cold War for helping um, shape both the Marshall Plan and uh, containment and kind of early Cold War U.S. strategy. Um, it's a place where you spend a lot of time thinking about uh, the history of the office, the history of those achievements, and Marshall really remains um, kind of a touchstone for, for the work you do as the Secretary of State, who uh, both kind of shaped the modern State Department, but also really kind of created a model of um, American leadership that has persisted for much of the last 70 years in, in a variety of ways, and uh, of course, it's what the same state for the Marshall Plan. So, gigantic assistance package that helps for recovery in Western Europe, and is, I think, rightly seen as one of the um, signature American foreign policy achievements of the last uh, many decades. But um, as I looked at Marshall and looked at uh, some of that history, it struck me that this episode in his career that I write about, the China mission, was in some ways just as important and just as um, significant a part of, of his, his, uh, his career in those moments, but really had gotten short shrift in the retelling um, of of that time and of Marshall himself. And that struck me as a shame in part because there's so much, like as you can trace the, the threads of the story in the China mission um, through the subsequent history of China, the United States, with the Cold War, and really into the present. Um, there's so much there, and there's so much resonance in the story of, of Marshall in this moment. Could you tell us a little about the research that went into this book? It looks like you traveled pretty extensively to different, different archives, including that of George Marshall um, and Secretary of State. Uh, Dean Atchison. Could you could you tell us a little bit a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean there, there's kind of an just an incredible historical record both in um, you know around the U.S. and then and then in China. Um, you know the story that I'm telling is really kind of a biography of Marshall in this period. So it's very much from his perspective, and that means that um, you know the, the the key and obvious sources are his papers, um, the official U.S. archives. His papers are in are in, uh, in Lexington, Virginia, um, on the campus of the Virginia Military Institute at the Marshall Library, which has an amazing set of resources. Um, and then you have lots of U.S. official records and military records and intelligence records, really amazing um, declassified intelligence documents from the period uh, traveling to the sites where this story takes place in China. is really fascinating, and that's everything from um, Chongqing and Nanjing, where uh, Marshall spent much of his time in China, to really kind of uh, fascinating place called Kuling, which is a European-built... Um, Kind of, uh, originally was kind of an imperialist retreat in the mountains that looks uh, a little bit like Switzerland, as, um, as was, was often said at the time and was intended and became the 
summer capital for, for uh, the nationalists, for John Kreshak, as well as to uh, Mao's headquarters um, in, in Yan'an, where the Long March ended, which is another kind of really fascinating place, kind of desolate landscape surrounded by ravines, uh, which became the place where um, uh, Mao kind of plotted revolution in, in the years before the end of the Civil War. Um, but in some ways, the most interesting sources, the most valuable sources for telling the story of Marshall came not from him or the kind of official documents that give you all the texture and meaning and the policy deliberations, but um, the, the material that came from a couple of his aides, a couple of the kind of younger figures who were around him and are not quite as well known to history, but had kind of ringside seats for a lot of what was transpiring. And one of them is a um, two, two very different characters who I found most useful and kind of um, helped tell the story in the book as a sort of a Greek chorus almost. One is a young officer named John Hartahi, who uh, is this kind of square-jawed, earnest character who really reveres Marshall and writes both in a diary uh, most days and also sends letters to his wife back in South Carolina, where he both talks a lot about Marshall and what Marshall's doing and saying, but also kind of expresses his fears that World War III is going to start in, in China, that he's kind of there at the, at the beginning of World War III. So that, that was a really rich source. And then... Um, the, the second young, uh, young figure around Marshall who provided so much of the texture for the story is uh, a young diplomat named John Melby, who was having an affair with a very prominent screenwriter and, uh, and playwright named William Hellman back in the United States as, as the story is playing out. And Melby, the young diplomat, is you know, spending his days uh, getting to know uh, the Chinese communists and trying to figure out what, what, what they're up to, spending time around Marshall, helping kind of um, provide analysis to him and sitting in meetings and, and Melby writes these letters back to uh, Lillian Hellman in the United States that are this kind of very strange combination especially when you come upon them in the, the Truman Library in Missouri of, of love letters these kind of you know uh, notes where he asks her why she's not writing him more and kind of talks about his feelings for her and then he goes into these long and very vivid and eloquent descriptions of everything that's happening on Marshall's mission so you get this um of amazing texture to the story from, from these two figures, especially that, you know, gives you not just a sense of what the policy discussions are, but also um, what Marshall says in the hallway afterwards, or what his mood is like, or what the gossip at parties is all about, or, you know, what the weather is, and that's, you know, part of what made the story so fascinating to me, is that you don't just get the kind of official narrative, but a, a much fuller picture. You did this a little bit, but could you, could you paint us a little picture of the main character of the story? George Marshall is one of the more enigmatic generals, or what it seems like enigmatic, that emerged during World War II. Um, everybody knows Dwight Eisenhower, everybody knows, everybody knows Douglas MacArthur and George Patton. All are so iconic, but, but who is George Marshall? It, it, it's, it's a great question, and I hope one thing that um, comes, comes with this book in some ways is that people kind of take another look at Marshall, um, because he is such a, both an important figure in shaping the 20th century, but also is kind of, I think, more fascinating than the mythology of him um, holds. I think we kind of know the myth, but I found that there was a, a much more kind of interesting and complex man um, beneath that myth. So just to kind of orient um, all of us in kind of remembering who he is, you know, he, I think most people know him either as the, the Army Chief of Staff during World War II, really one of the key American figures during the war, or as the Secretary of State who... Uh, helped create the Marshall Plan and, and uh, provided the name for the Marshall Plan. Um, just to, to set the stage in this moment, at the, at the end of 1945, right after World War II, where uh, the story I tell begins, uh, Marshall really is one of the most towering 
figures, not just in the United States, but in the in the world. Um, he was the person who had created Dwight Eisenhower. Apparently, he had picked Eisenhower out as he was a a younger general and, and elevated him to command and helped uh, support him when he um, uh, became the D-Day commander. Um, but by by the end of the war, Marshall is kind of seen as the key one of the key. American generals who had helped plot the Allied victory over uh, the Nazis and Japanese. He has this incredible public profile in the United States to the point that there is a uh, draft marshal movement trying to persuade him to run for president. Um, you read these quotes about him from people like Churchill and Truman who rave about him as kind of one of the greatest military leaders that has ever lived, as Truman would put it. Um, he is, you know, the Time Magazine Man of the Year, which is very important at the time. He um, has, has this incredible stature, but what was really interesting to me as I dug into this story is that the kind of image of Marshall that we have now, but also that people around him had at the time, is, is really wrong in some ways. It was an image that Marshall had constructed for his own end, you know, feeling that much more complex character that I alluded to earlier. Um, there's a, a line that came from an officer that knew him that I really love that goes something like, Marshall is the greatest actor in the Army. Everyone thinks that Douglas MacArthur is, but the difference with Marshall is that you never know he's acting. Um, Douglas MacArthur, whom you mentioned, was this theatrical and narcissistic and blustering figure next to the stoic and reserved and self-contained Marshall, but that officer was right. Marshall had kind of made himself into the great stoic, and he has all of these kind of habits or, or affectations almost um, to reinforce it. So he, he didn't like using first names. He would even insist that President Roosevelt call him General rather than George because he thought that any sense of intimacy would prevent him from saying exactly what he thought. He used to say things like, I have no feelings except those I reserve for Mrs. Marshall. And you read accounts from these kind of commanding figures who worked with him, whether, you know, Eisenhower or Dean Acheson or Truman or others, and they go into <coughs> giddy raptures when writing or talking about Marshall. And it's especially true of what they call his presence in the way it kind of immediately spread authority and calm whenever he into the room. But as I dug deeper into Marshall's life, but, you know, it turns out that this is really something that Marshall had built, and he ultimately rose to the heights of the Army, but when he was in his, really in his mid-30s, his career in the, in the Army was going so slowly that he thought he had to, he had to retire, he had to leave, but he wasn't going anywhere. And at the time, he was, uh, had a terrible temper, he smoked heavily, uh, he, he cursed lavishly, um, he drove himself so hard that twice he was hospitalized for what was called nervous exhaustion, but really kind of breakdowns from the pressure once he even um, collapsed in the street when he was serving in the Philippines. And he learned around this time that he had to create a persona that could handle pressure in a different way, and that became the kind of stoic commanding figure that, that we think of in history. On to, um, on to China. China had, um, you know, it's, was in the midst of World mm-hmm. War II, and it's, you know, it's war with Japan. Uh, can you give us sort of a snapshot of... Um, of, of where, what China looked like during this period of time? You know, I'll, I'll take it from a kind of American policy perspective. That's the way I really come at this in the book. Um, you know, you get to the end of uh, the aftermath of World War II and, and look at it from the perspective of President Truman, um, who has been in office just for several months at the time after FDR's death. Um, China is this gigantic problem that threatens not just to have kind of huge consequences uh, within China itself, but also really threatens the whole vision of the post-war world that the United States had kind of clung to through much of World War II. Um, we had, 
just named it a, a great power. It was one of the original signatories, the first signatory to the United Nations. Um, we had kind of held it up as one of the big four powers along with us and the British and the Soviets that were supposed to um, together keep the peace in, in the in the post-war. And that was very much the, the vision that had animated uh, the Allied effort through World War II. And it was something that um, still was really, it really seemed like a possibility in the aftermath of World War II, even as the sense of a kind of communist menace and mounting U.S.-Soviet tension was starting to grow. Um, the problem from, from the U.S. perspective was that China didn't really look like a modern great power. It looked in many ways more like a failed state. So you had a, a central government led by the nationalist leader, Chiang Kai-shek, um, who was a, a convert to Christianity, to a U.S. ally, had been... Um, painted in really kind of heroic terms through the war, although he had also had real tensions with um, U.S. officials and generals. Um, but you also have the communists led by, by Mao who are vying for control of China. Um, and so there's this uh, risk of a return to a civil war that had been going on and off for 20 years at this point at a moment when, for the United States, the sense of this communist menace was mounting. And so, um, you know, President Truman needs someone who can make this problem go away, who can help uh, salvage his vision of the post-war world by um, taking care of this problem in China. And so he looks at Marshall, who uh, has this incredible public profile, who, um, like, there's, a, there's a line from a personal, one of Truman's personal secretaries. He says, in, in Truman's eyes, Marshall could never do anything wrong. So Truman looks at this guy who has done, you know, as much as any other American probably to, to win World War II, to now go save the peace. Um, Marshall retires. He's, you know, he's had a a rough six years as Army Chief of Staff through World War II. Uh, his, his wife, Catherine, has been planning vacations for them. He's ready to you know, take a break and read and garden and ride horses. Um, but the day after his retirement ceremony from, from the Army, which happens in the courtyard of the Pentagon, which is a relatively uh, new building at that point, Marshall drives home with, with Catherine to their house an hour outside of Washington. And within minutes, they're walking into the door, it's supposed to be beginning their retirement, the phone rings, and it's President Truman uh, asking Marshall for one last favor to take on this mission to, to go to China and, and take care of the problem. And what, what convinced him to leave retirement to go do this? So Mar Marshall um, you know, had no illusions about the ease of the mission that Truman's asking him to take on, um, and he certainly had no desire to, to <laughs> go back to work, but he has this just incredible sense of duty. And um, when the president asks him to take, take care of this problem, uh, he can't say no. His wife, Catherine, knows he won't be able to say no, so she's kind of immediately furious as soon as she um, hears of Truman's request. But uh, that's really because she knows that her husband has this sense of duty that won't let him um, say no to the president. And, and Truman, Truman says to Marshall, look, it's just going to take you a couple of months. You'll go to China. You'll broker a peace in this um, civil war between the, the communists and the nationalists. You'll lay the groundwork for uh, essentially a Chinese democracy alike the United States, and then you'll come home a couple months later and, and start your retirement. And, you know, of course, the, the mission ends up lasting 13 months rather than a couple months and really sets Marshall on uh, a whole new phase of his career. It leads him to become Secretary of State the next year to the Marshall Plan and then to become Secretary of Defense uh, several years later. So to, to Catherine Marshall's great uh, dismay and, and, and fury at Truman in some ways, uh, Marshall doesn't actually retire for another six years. He lands in China in December of 1945. Um, what are his objectives, uh, or what are his, what is his strategy to um, complete the uh, the mission that uh, Truman asked him to do? 
Yeah, so Mar- Marshall, um, you know, once, once, he, once he decides to take on the mission, starts to kind of look at a problem that he has, you know, spent a fair amount of time. He's, he's, he's familiar with it. He's spent a fair amount of time thinking about it during World War II, and he had also lived in China as a, an officer when he was in his 40s and the 1920s as part of the U.S. troop presence there. So he has some familiarity with the problem, but it's, he's really contending with a, with a new thing, a new set of challenges to U.S. policy. His objectives are brokering this peace deal and kind of laying the groundwork for this, um, you know, unified Chinese government that is becoming a democracy and that can kind of play the role that the U.S. Uh, has envisioned for, for China after the after World War II. Um, the, the problem with these is that you have a central government led by the nationalists that is very, very um, reticent to involve any uh, communist figures until the communists have laid down their weapons and given up their, their autonomous armies and communists who are very, very reticent to um, give up their, lay down their guns, give up their armies until they have a kind of secure role in government. So he throws himself into what becomes a kind of three-sided negotiation, trying to um, broker a deal that would do both of those things just kind of simultaneously so that both sides would kind of have assurance that their, their core concerns are being addressed. And um, somewhat to, I think, even Marshall's surprise, it works much more quickly or seems to be working much more quickly um, than he even imagined. So after a, a couple of weeks of really kind of intensive study and uh, listening in, in his first um, his first weeks in China, you kind of you know, read these accounts of people going to meet with him and they're trying to figure out what he's thinking, and he will kind of tell them nothing. He, he, he kind of asks them questions but reveals nothing about his own thoughts, and it kind of throws people off because they expect him to show up, this towering figure, and um, tell them exactly what's going to happen. Instead, he's just, just kind of in, in receive mode for, for the first few weeks. But once he really throws himself into it, he seems to achieve these, these deals that um, people didn't think were possible. So he gets an agreement to stop the fighting relatively quickly. He gets an agreement for the two armies, you know, after days of negotiation, agreement for the two armies to uh, combine into one, one national Chinese army. And then he um, helps deliver a secret, secretly, he gives um, Chiang Kai-shek a, a draft bill of rights, which becomes um, the basis for what's going to supposed to become a kind of a new constitution for democratic China. So after a couple of months um, of, of his being there, you read um, these accounts from people all over the political spectrum, both in China and the United States, and even in Moscow, saying, wow, Marshall really has achieved something miraculous. He's gotten these deals. He, he's really kind of saved uh, China from the descent into civil war and from a U.S. perspective, um, uh, averted the risk of a, a communist victory and inverted the risk that the Soviets would be able to dominate China. Um, and, you know, you hear people like Henry Luce saying Mr. Marshall Luce would later become uh, a real critic and a kind of key figure in what became known as the China lobby later, not to jump ahead in the story too much. Um, and then figures who, you know, later would be very critical at the time are saying, wow, Marshall really has pulled something remarkable off. And even Marshall, you know, is a pretty hard-headed guy, it's really swept up in this kind of fervor of, uh, you know, evangelizing about democracy, really. So you see him in these you know, somewhat um, uh, cringeworthy moments in retrospect where he's, uh, you know, reading Benjamin Franklin's speeches to these Chinese negotiators. So there's a, there's a moment when he um, talks to the director, Frank Capra, who's about to start filming a movie called It's a Wonderful Life, and, and uh, Marshall asks him to start producing a series of short films they're going to teach the Chinese people how to be Democrats. So there, there's this moment when um, Marshall seems to 
think that he can see the way to this very, very different future for uh, for both China and for the U.S.-China relationship. <laughs> at the kind of climactic moment of this, he um, goes on a tour around, you know, what is really a kind of war-ravaged country um, that endured a very uh, terrible Japanese occupation for the previous several years, and, and Marshall kind of goes from place to place, um, helping kind of broker an end to these local fights and um, being received by these crowds that call him the kind of god of peace or savior of the country, and he finishes... Um, climactic moment on this tour he goes to meet with Mao and spends those 24 hours uh, talking about this different course for China and kind of giving toast to democracy and friendship. And, you know, Mao at the time is telling his followers about uh, the political path they're going to be on and is making noises about wanting to visit the United States to learn all about uh, U.S.-style democracy and free enterprise. Um, and, and Marshall flies off that day with all of these kind of promises being in the air. And instead of that becoming the future, it's another you know quarter century before another high-level American official meets with now, and that is Richard Nixon. Was there any evidence that um, Chiang Kai-shek could coexist with communist leaders like uh, Mao Zedong and Zhou Enlai, or or that or that either the communist leaders would be compliant to a Chiang Kai-shek-led regime? You raise a, a very a very important point. You know, there was very deep disagreement between the two sides. They've been you know fighting on and off for almost 20 years at this point, and they've, they've kind of tried to coexist before in, ver- in various ways, and it had always fallen apart because of those fundamental differences. Um, what seemed to suggest in the moment that it might be possible, and again, Marshall did not think it was easy, but there was this suggestion that it could happen, was that you still had um, outside powers really um, advocating for it or putting pressure on both sides to... Um, joined together in, 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 this, in this government, which would be led by initially by Chiang Kai-shek, the nationalist, but would still have communist involvement um, and would, you know, kind of set China on a path to a democracy that would bring in have various parties um, in, in, in government. Um, at the time, the U.S. Was, was pushing for this, but so was Stalin. Stalin did not have a lot of faith that, that Mao could win. He didn't, you know, recognize the kind of revolution that, that the Chinese communists were um, were pushing for is a really viable path forward. So there is a lot of pressure from the Soviets on now to, to negotiate. And that's, you know, given their, their outside patronage, um, given that relationship, that does put real constraints on, on the communists. So, you know, it, it starts to, those deeper forces start to um, unravel pretty quickly once that, those outside pressures change, once Soviet policy and U.S. policy changes. But in this moment, given um, this kind of last effort to uh, preserve the one world vision that had really sustained the Allies through World War II, um, there is this moment when it seems like it might be possible. And you know, part of what um, part of what changes is the uh, the changing international circumstances. You really get the Cold War starting in these months as Marshall is in China. Um, but also those deeper forces, those deeper disagreements that you alluded to really come to the surface uh, once they get into the details of these agreements on Marshall's side. Is there evidence, too, that um, Mao and the communists um, were willing to uh, strike more of an alliance with the United States during this period of time than the Soviets, or by the fact that they were communists, their sympathies were going to lie with the Soviet Union? It's in some ways a bit of both. So they, you know, they they have they had their own view of how they would play both sides. And there were moments when the communist leadership saw value in cultivating a relationship with the United States that they thought could benefit them, but also had real um, 
you know, ideological field, you know, like ideology mattered here. They believed in uh, the vision of a re revolution that, um, that started in, in Moscow. So, um, you know, there's a, there are interesting counterfactuals here. One of them is, you know, could the U.S. have done more to cultivate a relationship with the communists? And I think there's a lot of evidence that given the Cold War world and given the divide, um, it would have been hard to do that for more than kind of uh, short-lived transactional reasons. And what was the what was the ultimate outcome of Marshall's mission? Yeah, so I mean, it has kind of an amazing as you trace the the consequences going forward. There, kind of, in a, it, you can kind of trace the impact through lots of different areas and really fascinating and consequential ways. But just to um, you know, zero in on a few. He, of course, all of this falls apart just to make make the story uh, make the story a little short. And he, um, you know, Mar Marshall kind of tries to figure out what to do in the aftermath, and that in itself is a kind of really important part of the story as he wrestles with um, the consequences of that failure and what it means for uh, the U.S. and China and for kind of U.S. policy and the Cold War that is taking shape. But it's at the end of this mission that Marshall is tasked to become Secretary of State by President Truman. So he goes back to Washington and the kind of what the experience that he has during his first time as a diplomat um, shapes the way that he thinks about the Cold War world he's contending with as Secretary of State. And you see it in the way he thinks about the Marshall Plan, um, which he, he shapes, you know, just months after coming back from China. You see all these kind of interesting echoes in the language he uses to talk about um, containment internationally uh, that really started in the way he's talking about some of these factors in China. Um, and then just to, to jump forward even a bit more, um, after Mao wins in 1949, um, the consequences of that become you know, not just really central to the way the, the Cold War is developing, and obviously the way that... Um, China domestically uh, proceeds, but also to the political and policy base in the U.S. The question of who lost China becomes really one of the kind of most important and poisonous questions in American politics in the 1950s. And we kind of forget that Marshall's seen as this, um, you know, heroic figure, kind of almost almost cut from stone. And we remember these great accomplishments in in World War II and with the Marshall Plan. That um, he, he he at this time was a target of of that question. People ask questions, who lost China? And Marshall was seen as part of the answer. Uh, when Joseph McCarthy gave his, um, what became a really famous speech on the floor of, of Congress, talking about a conspiracy so immense and being so black, that was in a, a long um, takedown of Marshall, in part because of what he had done on, on the China mission. And that became really central in you know the rest of Marshall's life, but also in, in American politics going forward. So when you look at... Um, the 1952 presidential election, which is when McCarthyism is still uh, kind of at, at, at a height, still a really powerful political force. Eisenhower, who, whose career had really been made by Marshall and who, who looked at Marshall as kind of a father figure, as people would say at the time, um, would campaign with Joseph McCarthy and, and not defend Marshall because it was seen as so politically problematic. So that, that really um, uh, helped shape politics and policy making in the 50s and even into the 60s when you see um, the debates about Vietnam really making reference back to uh, to, to this moment um, when the U.S. you know supposedly lost China and and just to jump forward even a little bit more um, you know as, as Nixon and and his advisors start to really focus on the Sino-Soviet split and the kind of tensions in, in the communist bloc that we hadn't paid a lot of attention to for um, the previous several years you know in part our, our, our political difficulty of really acting on that and the Difficulty of policymakers to um, to recognize the the strategic opportunity there for the United States was in part a reaction to the political blowback from this moment. So you can kind of trace 
forward all these really interesting echoes of of this the mission that Marshall went on um, that you know really kind of shaped policy to the present in some ways. Do you see any parallels between um, the China mission and what Nixon was trying to complete in '72? In some ways, um, it, it is the, it is the next chapter in this. It, the, Joe and Lai is kind of you know fascinating figure. Um, both in, in the story of Marshall here and then the story of, of Kissinger and Nixon's negotiations um, a quarter century later is just this incredibly rich, charismatic, complicated figure um, who had a relational relationship with, with Marshall as well as with um, uh, policymakers 25 years later. And, um, you know, the way those negotiations played out, you see kind of lots of interesting echoes. And then even, even taking it forward, you know, we're at a really interesting moment in the debate on, on China and the United States right now that I think um, in some ways is causing people to think again about the opening to China in the, 19, in the 1970s in a, in a moment where kind of um, in a lot of parts of the U.S. there's a bit of dismay about the failure, as, as some people argue, of China to conform to our expectations. And um, that, too, is kind of a pattern that goes back to the moment of the China mission. Uh, final question: In in your own opinion, do you think the China, uh, Marshall's China mission could have succeeded, given the changes in the international circumstances? Um, you know, the beginning of the Cold War. It's very, very hard for me to think of anything that he could have done that would that would have changed. But the you know the kind of counterfactuals are um, more about whether something could have taken hold a little bit earlier at, at the timing of you know international events and this mission been different or. Could he have taken a, you know, what would have happened if he had taken a different lesson from his failure? Um, would there have been a different kind of U.S. intervention in Canada? Would, there, would U.S. policy have been different later on? So, um, in, in some ways, the, the interesting questions are not so much, you know, could he have handled this negotiation or that tactical move slightly differently, but um, what, what if he had taken something different from it, or what if it had happened? The book is The China Mission, George Marshall's Unfinished War, 1945 to 1947. Daniel Kurtz-Phelan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. It's great to talk to you.